all of that matters. How you work Monday through Friday in your office, that matters. How you live your lives in private at home, all of that matters. And how you guys love your children and love your spouses, that matters. And it matters immensely. It matters eternally. But that's easily, easily missed by all of us, right? We easily miss the weight of how all of this matters. All right, every week we gather together as God's people, week after week after week, we sit under the scripture, and we sort of get into that routine, and we miss the weight of why we gather and for whom we gather. We go to work almost every day of the week, we show up in the office and we get caught up in the grind of getting through the work week and going towards the work, uh, the weekend. We're at our homes and we, we're just caught up with the, the drone of the TV and the internet and, and it just dulls life. Right? Our kids are running around, never sitting down and we get tired of it and all of this, all of this just gets to us. And before we know it, we're living our lives, going through the motions, going through the routine, burdened, weary, and empty. Right? In Malachi's day, the people were exactly the same way. They had just returned from exile. God had returned them back to their home. God was restoring the temple, the place where they were worshiping, and they were supposed to get fired up. This was supposed to be a really good thing. This was supposed to get them excited. God's people could worship again. Right? They're home now. They're back to where they were, uh, were supposed to be. And God was going to make all things right again. But there was something missing. Right? They were missing something. All of, this, all of this that they just were used to, it just wasn't the same. They didn't uh, see uh, everything that they expected. The temple wasn't as majestic as they once remembered it. The worship wasn't as profound as they had remembered it. And God just wasn't present. And they questioned themselves. Is God really behind any of this? Is, is God really here? Does God really care for what's going on? Can he even see what we're doing right now? Does he even hear us? And quickly, these people became disillusioned. They just became fed up with it. Sure, they, they worshiped God, they worshiped the one true God, and they came to temple and they, they gave their sacrifices, but they just did it half-heartedly. They just said, whatever. You know, if God's not going to be here, if God doesn't care, if God's not watching me, then, then what does it matter? Right? If God doesn't listen to us, then how, what does it matter how we pray? Where is he? And these people, they were disillusioned in believing that God cared about what they were doing. All right, we should all relate with this attitude, right? What happens in your heart when you know that your boss is going on vacation for a whole week? You come into office a little late, you leave a little early, right? You, just, you browse on the internet for a little bit longer than you normally would. You take longer lunch breaks. You know that because the boss is out, you have a little bit more free reign. What happens when you guys are driving down the highway and you know there's this one spot when there's a cop squatting right there. You always know that this is the one spot. What do you guys do? 
You speed for every other part of that highway, but when you get to that one spot, you slow down. Right? That's a reality in all our, all our hearts. I want you to feel that. When, when authority gets removed from our lives, when good authority gets removed from our lives, our hearts quickly turn to rebellion, quickly turn uh, to disillusionment, taking shortcuts, uh, cutting corners. Right? And that happens in our worship. All of this crumbles. Everything that we're doing crumbles when we remove God, our great and good king, from the center of it all. Right? If he's not interested, then it's easy for us to turn it down a notch. Right? If he's not watching, then it's easy for us to just take shortcuts, to cut corners. In Malachi, what I want you guys to know that is the people of God began to turn away, turn their hearts away from God. And their, wor- their worship was half-hearted because of it. Their worship to God was shoddy. Their worship to God was deceptive. And it's in, these con- in, this, it's in this context that God speaks a hard and harsh word to his people. Right? The big idea today is that God, the great king, demands our wholehearted worship. What I want you guys to hear is how God's people saw God as worthless. And how deep, deep the disillusioned worship ran. What I want you to hear also is the remedy to this all. That we are to see God rightly and to know that he's at work. All right? So remember the structure of Malachi. Matt preached last week. The structure of Malachi is disputations. What this is is God speaks a word and his people dialogue with him, and they dispute what God has said. So it goes something like this. Remember last week, God says, I have loved you. What do the people say back to him? How have you loved us? I don't see it. They say, God says, I have done this for you. What do you mean? What have you done for us? There's disputations. And so we're in the second disputation between God and his people. And listen to how God addresses his people who give him half-hearted worship. I'm going to read this scripture, and I want you guys to hear and feel the tone of God's voice to his people, and then we're going to pray, all right? A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If them I am your father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord. Of hosts to you, O priests, despisers of my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted sacrifices upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he might be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. 
I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Let's pray. Father, we take heed these words. God, we we don't miss these words this morning. God, I pray that you would soften our disillusioned hearts, that you would remind us again that worship matters, that what we do matters, that you are eternally sovereign, king over our lives, and that we ought to respond in honor and worship of your name. God, do that for us. Speak clearly to us. Break our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. First, I need you to understand the context of how God is speaking into these people's lives, all right? To feel the weight of what's happening here, okay? God chose Israel. Israel was God's people. God chose them. Remember in the, uh, the first disputation here, God reminds them, I have loved you. God chose them unconditionally. This was God's covenant people. That meant that God and his people had an agreement. God was going to protect them. God was going to watch over them. God was going to bless them. And the people in response to that were going to worship the one true and living God. And the worship that God had outlined was all spelled out in the Torah. The Torah is the law. The law was designed to keep these people worshiping God because their hearts were so prone to wander and worship other gods, worship idols. And this law applied to literally every part of your life, right? They had laws for how to uh, properly enjoy your rest on the Sabbath. They had laws to properly take care of the common rash on your skin. They had laws for everything. And it was imperative that Israel follow these laws to worship God. And there were a lot of these laws, a lot. So God in his love and care for Israel, his people, he appointed priests, okay? These priests, their job was to properly give covenant worship to God. They were supposed to be the, the refs in the temple. They were supposed to uh, decide what, what sacrifices were acceptable and unacceptable, right? These were the people that were supposed to know the law inside and out. But, God, but God's people had become disillusioned disillusionment had seized their hearts. And they began to believe God was far off, wasn't watching us, wasn't listening, wasn't going to do anything about our situation. And they began to give shoddy sacrifices, cutting corners, doing whatever was, you know, that they thought was going to be acceptable. And they broke the Torah. And so that's why God in this passage, as you guys hear him speaking, you hear him coming with guns blazing, right? shouting with anger, righteous anger and rage at the priests, right? Don't get me wrong, the the people are also at fault here, right? The people are also at fault for giving shoddy sacrifices, cutting corners, being deceptive in their worship of God, but he, the brunt of his anger is at the priests because these were the people that were supposed to know better. They were supposed to know the law and, and love their people in guiding them and leading them in right covenant worship before God. And I hope you heard it in there. God had fire in his voice, 
right? This is like last week, Bill Belichick with the replacement refs. He sees something happening. He grabs the ref and he's about to punch this guy's lights out, getting fined $50,000 for that. This is Liam Neeson. You guys ever see the movie Taken? He has a fire in his eyes to take down every person that is in his way. God has a fire in his eyes. This is the feeling that you get when you see injustice happening right before you. You guys know that feeling? It's just that rage, that righteous anger that wells up in you. Multiply that by a billion, and that's where God's at. He begins this disputation by plainly stating something that was, uh, something that was fully accepted in that culture. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. This was so woven into the fabric of their culture in that day, it was fully accepted and fully understood that a good son would honor his father, that a good servant would honor and fear his faithful master. This was just the expectation. And remember, God had just finished reminding Israel that he had loved them, that he chose them, that he, was gonna, he protected them, that he showed favor to them, like what? Like a good father, right? So here, God emphatically demands, if I'm your father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where is my uh, fear, you priests, you despisers of my name? You see, God's people began to believe that he was far off and that their worship didn't really matter. They were disillusioned. They were disillusioned that they, they were, their hearts were convinced that sacrifices didn't matter, that whatever they brought was okay, that their sacrifices could just could be shoddy, they can cut corners, and they can do whatever they wanted to. The word despise here, and I want you guys to hear this word, the word despise here is such a good word to describe the attitude of these people. Right? It can be translated to regard with contempt, or better yet, to, re- to count as worthless. So it's like when you are standing there in a market basket, and you guys notice the, um, the headline to the National Enquirer. Right? It says something stupid like, the fourth sighting of Bigfoot in southern Maine. And you guys look at it and you despise it, right? What? Well, you just count it worthless. It's, it's kind of slightly annoying to you too. And you just don't look, think about it twice. You brush it off. It's worthless to you. That heading means nothing to you. You despise it. You dismiss it. And that's how these priests treated God and his name. They despised his name. Israel wasn't honoring God. They weren't fearing him. They considered him worthless, not worth much thought. They despised him. In an astounding way, his people reply with this. They say, how have we despised your name? How have we considered your name worthless? It's, a, it's amazing, right? When you guys read scriptures like this, don't you get amazed that God doesn't just flick them off the planet Earth and just destroy them? Like, I don't need this. Like, if I was God, I'd be like, I don't need this. Like, just done. Finished. You're done. But God, in his mercy and grace, actually answers 
their inane question. He says, you make my name worthless by offering polluted sacrifices upon my altar. And again, his people talk back to him saying, what do you mean? How have we polluted you? And again, with incredible patience and care and love for his people, he says, you polluted me by saying that the Lord's table may be despised, may be made worthless. You made my table a joke by offering blind animals and sacrificing them on it. You made my altar worthless by offering lame and sick animals on it. That's how you polluted my name. See, the law required that you bring unblemished, perfect, healthy sacrifices on that altar, but these priests didn't care. They didn't care. They didn't care to bring healthy animals. They brought whatever was given to them. And they undermined the whole sacrificial system. It's like these priests didn't care. They just shrugged their shoulders and said, meh, whatever. Half-heartedly worshiped God. This was all a joke to them. How wicked is that, right? How wicked is that? God explicitly told them how to worship him, how to rightly worship him in covenant, and his people disregard him and do whatever they want. The argument here that, uh, that God uses is, if you were to do the same before your officials, how would they react? Right? If, you, if you guys were to steal, if you were to break the law by stealing, how do you think our state officials, the governor, would react to your actions. You think you'd just shrug it off and be like, yeah, it's all right. No. He would give you just punishment, everything that is due to you by the letter of the law. So, if your governor doesn't even tolerate your disobedience, then how do you expect your God to tolerate it? That's the argument here. These people had absolutely no fear of God. They didn't care for perfect sacrifices or healthy sacrifices to honor God. They did whatever they wanted because God doesn't care. He's not listening. He's not going to do anything about it. Isn't that how some of our churches are these days? Right? Isn't that how some of our worship goes? It doesn't matter what we preach because God's not really listening. It doesn't matter how we preach. God doesn't care. It doesn't matter what kind of songs we sing because is God really going to listen to what we do? Is he here to see what's happening? Doesn't matter if my, I live my life in holiness because who cares? God's not going to do anything about it. Right? Even in our very city, this sort of attitude is prevalent. Right? We have broken and desecrated the covenant of marriage by just doing whatever fits our preferences. And the church honors it. We'd much rather entertain people from the pulpit rather than giving them the truth of the word of God. Right, we much, we much rather preach self-improvement, how you can do better in your workplace and how you can better, have better friendships than preach Christ exalted. Our day is not far removed from what's happening in Malachi. It's not. There's so many disillusioned churches out there. There's so many disillusioned people out there that are just doing whatever they want before God, the great king. Whatever feels cool, whatever feels right, whatever is good at the moment, lacking in any holiness, any fear, and any honor of God. I mean, you could sit through a whole Sunday at some of these places and not realize who they worship. 
moralistic teaching, moralistic advice, happyisms, whatever. It's all fair game in the pulpit. And all of this because they count God's name worthless. It means nothing to them. They don't rightly see the glory of Jesus and ascribe the worth due his name. That's what worship means, right? Worship is the expression of someone or something's worth, right? And it's sad to say that judging from our worship in our day in churches, there's no wonder that this world thinks we worship a dead God. No wonder. And so God pleads in verse 10, right in the middle of this, God pleads with his people, oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And that, that's some hard words from God to his people. He's saying all these sacrifices, everything that you're doing right now, I don't need any of it. I would much rather you shut the doors, shut this operation down, because I need wholehearted worship, not this half-hearted joke. God was pleading for someone to get up out of their seats and just shut the doors to this place, to shut it all down because God was not being honored by what was happening. He wanted someone to stand up because they, they were so enamored by who God is and how much he was worth that they would not tolerate any of this. Just one person. What would it like, look like for us? What would that look like for us? What would it look like if we were so wrapped up in the value of God that we had the courage to worship him and express the worth of Jesus fully? And that when we heard of people that were disgracing and despising the name of Jesus, that our hearts would be wrecked, that we would be so broken. Wouldn't it be such a beautiful thing if we were a people of God that felt so strongly about the worship of God that we would relate with this verse, that we would stand and shut the doors because we can't have God's name profane. I pray that Seven Mile Road will be full of people, not just one, but full of people that would heed this call, that would follow this call, that we would worship Jesus fully as he's fully worthy. When God didn't want fire on his altar to be kindled in vain. I want to stop for a moment to listen to that word. When God says in vain, that word is important. That word can be translated as cheap. That word can be translated as um, that which costs you nothing. Right? So again, God is adamant about the value of his worship that he doesn't want anyone devaluing covenant worship, that he doesn't want anyone stripping it of its worth. God doesn't want anyone to give something half-heartedly, sick goats, lame animals, lame sheep, when they have healthy ones in their stock. This was their worship. This was Israel's worship. In other words, if worship expresses the worth of someone or something, what were they saying about God? That he's worthless. He's of no cost, no value, means nothing to me. 
sacrificial system wasn't about the lambs, wasn't about the goats, wasn't about the sheep. It wasn't about those things in and of themselves. The sacrificial system was about worth. God wasn't a carnivorous God. God didn't, you know, find meats to be, you know, particularly great. None of that. This sacrificial system was about worth, right? It was all about worship. And God demanded only the best, most perfect, because God was worth it. And to offer the best animals, to offer uh, what was best out of your own stock, that really hurt. Right? You, you got you to gotta imagine that, that really uh, hurt and was a sacrifice. Right? If you, it's hard for us to kind of imagine this, but if you were to be in that day, think about the most valued possession in your, in your household and just lighting it on fire in an altar before God. Right? It, w- it would hurt a little bit, right? It would hurt a little bit. But it all should have been worth it when you give it up to God. Worship is sacrifice. And the sad thing is that Israel devalued God. They didn't see worth in him. And they brought to him lame sacrifices, sick animals, blind animals, animals that, and worst of all, animals that were just stolen violently or animals that had, you know, were missing a leg or missing an a arm or whatever. They just offered whatever they had on the altar of God before the holy king. And they were giving to God Second-hand stock. And all of this goes to show how they valued God. It just wasn't worth the hassle. So in verse 13, we get a glimpse into the underlying heart attitude of Israel and her priests. We see that, we see that the heart issue that had crept into their worship, um, as it reads uh, in verse 13, he says, But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Right? They just didn't see the point. They didn't see the point of all this. They just said, what a weariness this is. This is just, this is just too burdensome. This is too hard of a task. I, I don't really care. They began to lose sight of why they worshipped, who they worshipped, and their sacrifice was just shot. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, all this just became a burdensome, weary task. When they say that it's snorted, again, that word is emphasizing how they undervalued God. That word is something like when you just shrug your shoulders and say, eh, whatever. Or when someone shows you something that they think is awesome, but you're just like, ah, that's cool. And you just say, eh, whatever. That's snorted. That's what it means to snort. So they just shrugged it off and said, whatever, doesn't really matter. Because to them, God was of no weight. God was of no value. God was not worthy of worship. And it becomes clear that a symptom of, of a disillusioned soul, a symptom of a heart that's disillusioned by what's happening is lackluster worship, half-hearted worship, weariness in worship. So what's the remedy to all this? How does God preach to the Israelites? How does he preach to them to remedy their heart situation? We see this twice. We need to believe uh, in two things. Uh, We need to believe that God is at work and that God 
is king. This passage is broken into two parts. God repeats himself two times, saying basically the same thing in warning his people that they are bringing him shoddy sacrifices. And at the end of those two sections in verse 11 and verse 14, God reminds them of two things. He reminds them of his work in this world and of who he is. And that's what we need to believe to get out of this dissolution state. First, God's at work. In verse 11, when God tells them uh, that his name will be made great in the nations, what he's saying is that you, Israel, have counted my name worthless. But in the nations, my name will be great. You, Israel, have offered polluted sacrifices. But in the nations, they will offer me pure offerings. All right, this should have just stunned the Israelites. This should have just stunned them and, 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 and woken them up from their slumber. If there was one thing, one place where God's name was supposed to be made great, it was supposed to be within the borders of Israel. The, the people outside, the countries outside, the nations outside should have been on the outside looking into Israel and seeing the glory of God within Israel. But what does God say? He reminds them that my glory goes beyond your borders and the nations will see that I am great. They will offer pure offerings to me. God's plan for redemption was always to spill over the borders of Israel. And they should have been reminded and rebuked that the nations were at a better place than they were. God's covenant people. Now, not only was it a rebuke, but it should have also been an encouragement. They should have also been encouraged that God really is at work, that God really is going to accomplish his work of making his name great in all the world, in all the nations. And when it, was, when it was difficult to see that God was actually doing something in the Jewish temple, when it was difficult to see that God was actually working and moving among them, they needed to be reminded that God was accomplishing his work. We need that too. When we're in a disillusioned state, we need to be reminded that God is at work, right? We need to pour through the scriptures page after page and hear the stories of how God's redemptive hand is working among all his saints. We need to be in gospel communities, right? Seeing firsthand how God is working in the lives of others and the realities of their own mess. Do you guys ever uh, run into a brand new baby Christian that has just experienced the grace of Christ in the gospel? You guys hear them talk about their testimony of how God has changed their lives and turned them around? You guys know that feeling of hope that you get that God is actually doing something, that's what we need. We need to know that God is at work. It's when we're confronted with God at work, doing his great work in this world, that we're brought out of our disillusionment. Second, we need to believe the truth of who God is. At verse 14, at the end of the second part of this passage, God reminds Israel of who he is. He says, For I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's it's in this place when disillusionment grips the heart of God's people that we desperately need to rightly understand who God is, that he 
is king. He's not the dead God. He's not too far removed to care. He's not too blind to see. He's not too deaf to hear. He is the great king. And not just in Israel, but he's a great king who's going to be feared among the nations. He's the king of this world, ruling over every part of it. You know what that means? If he's ruling over every part of it, he sees all that's going on. He knows of all the activities of his kingdom. He rules this kingdom justly. And if we see him rightly as that king ruling this world, that means we will correctly value him. We will correctly honor him. There's no way we're going to bring shoddy sacrifices if he sees all that we're doing if he's ruling. There's no way we're going to slouch one bit in his presence if he's ruling his kingdom rightly. If he's king, then our identity should be wrapped up in being servants, worshiping him, giving our whole hearts in service to him. We need to know that he's king. I'd love for you guys to spend some time this week in the gospel communities to, to just unpack this. Unpack how you guys devalue or despise the name of God. Ask God to uncover the ways in which you're doing that. Pray that God would reveal that to you. But to, point, uh, to, to get to the point of application here, I want to answer the question and press in on how would deva- uh, our lives look different if we valued God rightly? How would valuing God rightly change the way we live? One, when we value God rightly, our worship should be life-giving. Our worship should be life-giving, not wearisome. Right, when Jesus is big, when the gospel is strong, when we cling to the cross, when the gospel is true, Our worship is just like breathing. We don't think twice about it. It just happens. It's life-giving. And it all begins with the gospel. Worship becomes joyful. Worship becomes life-giving. We experience Christ and his free grace. And we know that his burden is light. But when we forget the gospel, when we forget all that, when we forget that we're freed from the captivity of sin, worship is just another heavy burden that we have to load. And just carry. Pray that you would remember the gospel. Pray that you remember the God of the gospel. Pray that you would remember the words when he says, I have loved you. That he's chosen you unconditionally. Second, when we value God rightly, we don't cut corners in our worship. We just don't. It doesn't happen. There's nothing more foolish in us than to think that we can scam God. We can't do it. Worship that cuts corners is just worship of yourself, right? It's worship because of yourself because you value more your ease and your comfort than God's name and his glory. There's something in you that you're still hiding from God something in you that you're still holding on to, not yet offering to God, if there's something in you that you feel like you're keeping to yourself, then don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Give it all to God. Don't think you can get away with it. 
That might mean in your jobs, when you're cutting corners, deceptively maneuvering your way so that everything could benefit you, you need to stop that. That might mean sexual purity in your life, right, and not despising the covenant of marriage, the covenant that God has uh, created between you and your spouse. That might mean deception in your speech, right, cutting out the lying so that you can get whatever you want. In all of it, God demands your worship. God demands right worship. And in light of God's redemptive work in your life, our heart should long to bring him wholehearted, right worship. And lastly, when we value God rightly, when we value him rightly, we should worship him as our primary call in every arena of life. Everything. You worship with everything you do, right? Whether you know it or not. When you're reading a book, you're worshiping him. When you're watching TV, you're worshiping him. When you're taking a walk with your kids, you're worshiping. The question is, what's your object of worship? Right? What, what is it that you're worshiping? And God, the great king, demands your wholehearted worship. So at your day job, you need to worship. We need to worship. We need to worship God so that we're less tempted to slack off and slouch and to, to cut corners and to, to work with honesty and integrity. We need to see that our parenting is worship so that we, uh, so we, that we discipline our children in love rather than yell at them in anger. Right? We need to see our relationship relationships as, as worship so that we hug and greet one another in love and also pray and, and carry one another's burdens. Right? We need to see that all of this is worship, that our discipleship is worship, right? That our discipleship is not just, you know, uh, a public showing of how good we are in, in, in church and how good we are in our gospel communities, but in private, also living holy lives to honor God. All of it is worship. Every arena is worship. We need to see that God is calling us primarily to worship him in all arenas of life. Seven Mile Road, our God, the great king, demands our worship and our wholehearted worship. God calls us. He says, oh, that there would be one among you, right? One among you who would take seriously this call to worship me who would do this rightly before me to honor me as I should be honored. Let's be a people like that. Let's be a people that's set on expressing the worth and value of Jesus rightly so that this world will know that our God is great and our God is worthy to be praised. Let's do that.